Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast channel that puts members on mic for thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Featured in this session, impacts of data, innovation, and technology on CRE competitiveness is Kalandra Kruikshank, founder and CEO of Statebook International. I'm Kalandra Kruikshank, and I am founder and CEO of Statebook International. And um, I guess I have to take care of a quick few things. Thank you very much to Savile Studley for sponsoring the Tech Playground for us today. And please make note of all the emergency exits in this very open floor plan. <laughs> um, so Statebook International is a location intelligence platform. So let me do a quick introduction on that. We launched three years ago. And um, we are currently, using, are currently used by over 90 site selection professionals, 500 or more companies seeking locations in the United States. Um, Select USA, which is the branch of the federal government that, um, that works around the world to market the US as the best place to do business around the world. They use our data at their 34 locations, bringing all of the foreign direct investment into the US. So they actually use our platform for site selection and helping those companies locate. And then um, over 600 economic development organizations use our platform for their research, marketing, and lead generation as well. Here are just a handful of companies on the left that use our data, just as some examples. IBM, WeWork, Amazon, DuPont, um, some Select USA we talked about, some of the site selection firms that use our data, Deloitte, Biggins, Lacey Shapiro, Genovis out of Indiana, and we've done a lot of projects with several of the large um, commercial real estate brokerage firms, and JLL, I understand, uses our incentives data on a pretty regular basis. So what Statebook does is we aggregate data from over 50 different, mostly federal sources of data, and we source and surface that data. Um, and Well, you can see some of the different types of data that we aggregate here, um, demographics, education, health, households and income, incentives, workforce, transportation, utility rates, taxes. And um, we surface our data in three ways. One is an interactive GIS mapping platform. Right now you're looking at um, the 53 metros across the US that have a population of a million or more that would be competing for the Amazon project. And you can see that you can kind of open up these tabs at the top of the page and find different data sets and then filter to locations that meet your particular needs for your business. And then we also surface our data in economic development organization microsites. So in these microsites, you can actually look at the data, a holistic view of the data that we have for over 63,000 data points by county, MSA, state, or economic development organization footprint. And um, communities can add their own, when they join as members, they can add their own editorial content, photos, charts, and graphs side by side with our statebook stats statistical data to uh, complement our statistical data and tell the broader picture of their community. And we worked very hard with site selectors to really understand what data um, site selectors want 
that they can only get from a primary source like an economic development organization. So we give EDOs a framework within which to answer questions uh, like what are your top and targeted industries that you specialize in and what are you looking to grow in your community, that kind of thing. And that nicely complements our statistical data. All of our data gets down to the lowest level codes, so things like SOC codes, six digit NAICS codes, all of that kind of thing. And we have um, just vast amounts of data that really enable companies, once they have a short list, to go in and do a deep dive on a community. We also enable companies and economic development organizations to compare data across communities and efficiently create uh, customized reports literally in minutes, reducing what used to be weeks or months of research. So on to our program for today. Impacts of data innovation technology on uh, corporate real estate competitiveness. So 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone, which is a staggering statistic if you think about it. And five exabytes of information were created between the dawn of civilization through 2003, and that much information is now created every two days. So the amount of data and information that we have access to, you've been hearing about it over and over in sessions throughout this conference, it's really extraordinary, and it's changing the way that we think, the way that we do business, the way we work, live, and play. And because of that, we have ubiquitous connectivity um, through technologies like broadband, Wi-Fi, DAS, 4G and 5G. We have unprecedented breakthroughs in technology happening faster than we can keep track of them um, in cloud computing, leaner coding, processing power, mobile devices, sensors. We have cheaper software and hardware, which is enabling our businesses to operate more efficiently, and big, small, and smart data. And then an increasingly savvy, uh, tech-savvy mobile real estate workforce, which is important because all kinds of technologies, as you all know, are making it much easier to do business in the real estate industry with um, you know, different lease management platforms and access to data like what my company, Statebook, provides and all sorts of different technologies that are innovating, rapidly innovating that workspace. We are also facing a changing workforce. So over 30% of the US workforce was non-employee in 2015. That's estimated to be 40% uh, by 2020 and growing really, really rapidly. So I don't know if anybody was in the, uh, the session with uh, IBM and JLL a little while ago, but they were talking about the benefits of having a, a workforce that's sort of dispersed and potentially non-employee uh, versus you know having a workforce like IBM that led the dispersed workforce scenario about 15 or 20 years ago in this country is now bringing everybody back to the office. And what are the pros and cons of that? IBM feels very strongly that they are actually losing a lot of the innovation that happened when people were working apart, and so they're bringing everybody back. The millennial share of the workforce is now equal to boomers at 25% and is estimated to be 45% by 2025, which is just around the corner. So workforce itself is changing dramatically. And of course, that's greatly impacting how companies are attracting and retaining talent and what that looks like for, 
for them and how that incredibly determines where they're going to be locating because everyone knows that there's there's a, a big war on talent and that every site selection uh, conversation starts with talent. And it, I thought it was very funny. I took it out, but I had a slide. When you, when you Google war on talent, actually this photo of Yoda keeps showing up, which I thought was very funny, but I did take it out. Um, so again, increasingly tech savvy mobile workforce, um, demographics of the workforce are changing, demographics of our communities are changing. People are increasingly moving to cities and to suburbias that are sort of suburbanizations where people, whether they live in suburbs or cities or even out in the country, they're increasingly wanting both baby boomers and millennials want the same thing in a live, work, play environment where they can walk or bike to work, where they can have conveniences very close by, where they can have a sense of community um, within the space that they work and access to education, healthcare, um, jobs, and so forth, very close at hand. And then we're seeing a lot of innovation clustering that's also happening, and increasingly so. And this is a uh, map of the sort of 21st century innovation from MIT that shows where innovation districts are, co-working spaces, accelerators and incubators, and then patent where patent licensing is occurring. And so with all of this innovation happening at an increasingly rapid rate, it's really changing the way that we are operating. With all of this comes disruptive technologies, changing the way that we do business. The um, real estate tech annual global financing is has dramatically increased, and um, MIT is tracking more than 2,000 tech startups in real estate tech. So they're active, they have an active database of 2,000 real estate tech startups worldwide, and um, the head of disruptive real estate tech for MIT actually sits on our state book board. And so we have a lot of conversations around this and how these, how these um, startups are impacting the industry, how they're impacting even just uh, venture fu uh, funding sources and the incredible growth and availability of that funding and interest from the venture community in real estate tech. Um, so another one of the really interesting trends, which I referred to a minute ago, but let's go a little bit deeper, is co-working and the advance of that. And you know, you see we work here with a booth and you know, working hard to um, engage a lot of companies. What's really interesting is that it's now companies with more than a thousand employees that make up 20% of WeWork membership and 30% of sales. So companies like IBM and Amazon are taking secure floors, and in the case of IBM, a, a building all set up by WeWork, which enables them to have kind of speed to market when they want to get a facility up and running. It's very quick and easy. They don't have to do the build out themselves. They don't have to think about all of the amenities that they're employees may need, and yet by partnering with WeWork or other co-working companies, they're still able to be surrounded by the innovation that happens when in those co-working facilities when entrepreneurs are all 
they're working together. And um, co-working membership is estimated to more than double from 1.6 million in 2017 to 3.8 million in just three years from now. So it's growing really, really fast. And again, that is having a big impact on how companies do business and how commercial real estate brokers are able to find space. And you're seeing increasingly the brokerage firms themselves are partnering with the WeWorks of the world to help them find space and help their tenants, help their clients find tenant space in WeWorking um, op locations. So here's just a quick chart that shows some of the co-working market still growing at an incredibly high rate and the, the different growth rates and number of members and co-working spaces worldwide and how the co-working demographics have changed from 2010 to 2017 where in, the, in 2010, which is that lighter red color, um, it used to be majority freelancer, independent worker. Now it's sort of growing to be employees at small firms of 100, more, fewer than 100 employees, and then employees at large firms is experiencing very large growth um, for firms with over 100 employees. So really interesting makeup of the demographics the and how that's changing. From the so this is kind of a fun little video um, that <laughs> shows the, some of the impacts of what autonomous vehicles are having on our communities and the way that we live, work, play, and get around. And so you can see here, this is a standard car, and these little autonomous vehicles, one of them, one, one regular sized car can be replaced by three autonomous vehicles in a parking space. And with that, it can, it's, it drives you to where you want to go. If you're listening to a lot of the sessions at this uh, conference, they're talking a lot about how um, with the advent of autonomous vehicles and the sharing community, it's really changing the way that in, we get to work. We think about where we live. We think about how we um, interact the with the community around us. And so you see that little car just drives that guy. He gets out, and he's all set and can go where he wants to go. That little car can now park there in the third of the parking space, or it can go self-park itself in a garage somewhere, or it can go pick up somebody else and bring them where they need to go. So it changes dramatically. Um, these are just some autonomous buses that are already being engaged in different places. And it dramatically changes the way that we think about our communities and how they're laid out, city planning. And this l quote here says, in the urban U US, the automobile consumes close to 50% of the land area in cities. And in LA, it's two thirds. So if you think about autonomous vehicles taking up up to a third less space and being shared amongst a bunch of different people so that maybe you don't even own one, what does that do in terms of freeing up this real estate in communities for both um, additional development, for green space that can increase quality of life? There are all different major impacts that this has on our communities and the way companies think about their space and think about um, you know, where their employees are gonna be living and working. These are just a few other examples of some autonomous vehicles that are already being deployed. Um, again, the, the autonomous bus, Amazon's warehouse blimp, um, and then obviously Amazon Prime 
drones delivering packages all over the place. Um, I think the scariest thing that I saw recently for drone technology was they've created a drone now that um, can actually handle the recoil from a machine gun. And so they're deploying drone armies with machine guns, which is a horrifying <laughs> idea to me. Um, and one of the craziest things I saw recently, I should have put a photo of this in, is that in Dubai, they're actually um, deploying their police force on motorcycle drones. So they fly around and hover around, and they're on, it's a motorcycle in a drone. It's really crazy looking. Um, some other things that, uh, that are dramatically affecting the way that space is utilized are 3D printing, um, everything from body parts to retail. And certainly with 3D printing, it's shrinking the footprint that our factories need to have. And, um, and also, you know, kind of instant gratification for consumers and businesses. And there was another slide that I, I should have included, and I don't know if you saw the presentation yesterday, um, but they're 3D printing houses now and buildings. And it's really, it's incredible because when you think about resiliency and how our communities respond to natural disasters, um, being able to come in and 3, 3D print buildings after a natural disaster and have things up and running very, very quickly is really an extraordinary opportunity. Another really cool thing, it's kind of hard to, to get it from this picture, but there, uh, I was at MIT, um, this must have been about a year ago now, and I saw what they call smart bricks which are this little boulder in the, in the bottom right of that photo is actually has a flexible skin and it's magnetized and it has a little uh, responsive computer in it. So it can, you can have a, an earthquake, which is what be, is being depicted in this photo. You can have an earthquake and the bridge crumbles and a couple of hours later, some shipping containers with these little round balls come show up and they're pre-programmed to just go in and instantly build themselves to support the bridge. Um, I saw also at MIT these little wire pieces that as you're watching them, again, they're magnetized and I don't know where the brain for those sits, but they <laughs> instantly just kind of build themselves into structures that are incredibly strong. So it's really amazing the way that even just construction is becoming smart and very interesting to see where that technology goes in the future. And again, how it affects the structures that we build, how quickly we can build them, what that means for businesses. When you think about relocating or expanding operations um, or you know, employee houses or office space, that kind of thing, it'll be really interesting to see what that looks like. Um, in terms of factories, again, kind of you know, we're all used to seeing these photos now that where the factories are completely automatized and you have just robots working there and only a handful of people. I think there's one guy, if you look really closely in this picture, in the sort of top left, and he's probably got an iPad and he's, you know, walking around making sure the robots are doing what they're doing. And again, it decreases the footprint potentially, increases the, the uh, efficiency of making manufacturing and changes how our workforce certainly needs to be retrained to be able to manage the robots as opposed to doing this kind of work themselves. Smart city technology is affecting, I think, pretty much everything going forward in terms of the way that companies need to respond to 
um, where their employees are, are locating. And I think one of the really interesting things, if you look at this Smart Cities graphic, it's got many of the different elements that we think of today, Internet of Things, smart home technology. Are you engaging your kids in elementary school um, with STEM and computer science? How does that affect the companies and the workforce of the future? Smart grid, smart energy, um, smart agriculture. Everybody sort of thinks of agriculture as farmers and farms, but really the cows now come in and milk themselves at the right time, and robots are doing all of that work too. And there are robot tractors that are plowing the fields and sowing seeds and harvesting the crops. And so all of that is changing dramatically, which uh, obviously affects how we, how we eat <laughs> and how we get our food and all of those things. Um, smart mobility, we covered a lot of that. Smart health, um, IBM Watson Health was the first sort of deployment of the IBM Watson technology. And now, you know, you can call up and um, talk to a computer and tell them your symptoms and they can prescribe what you need with dramatic accuracy and then contact your doctor if you need to, um, if you need to see an actual doctor as opposed to just the computer just sort of, you know, making, identifying what, what your problem is. And then obviously open data um, with governments releasing increasing amounts of data and um, making that available to the public changes the way that uh, democracy is done and has all kinds of implications for the future. Uh, here's just a few examples of how some of these things are working. So Denver and in partnership with Panasonic is building an Aerotropolis at the Denver airport. And uh, the first, what is the name of that pod thing that um, Elon Musk is creating? The first one of those is going in in Denver. Um, so we'll be able to travel at ridiculous speeds <laughs> to get to and from work. And uh, this whole smart cities uh, project in Denver with Panasonic is Panasonic's first deployment of a smart city in the US, but they've been doing it in Asia for quite a while now with great effect. And this is a little outline of what is happening in Lake Nona, Florida, which is one of the first intentionally designed smart cities communities designed from the ground up to be a smart city. And they've taken into account residential, schools, dining and entertainment, parks and recreation, health and wellness. You can see all of these different things are, it's a, it's a beautifully laid out community because they're using autonomous vehicles and they've got plenty of green space for their people working and living in that area, plenty of recreation. It's all built in a live, work, play environment and it's automated as much as possible with sensor technology and automation and autonomous vehicles. It's really exciting. I'm actually going there in May and I can't wait to take the tour. Um, Columbus, Ohio won the federal government's uh, Smart City Award and they won a $40 million grant to put in smart transportation grid around Columbus and tying together a lot of the different systems that they already have in place there. And then that will in itself dramatically uh, affect how the 
development is done in and around Columbus, how people move around the city and so forth, they've leveraged that initial 40 million to something like $500 million. And so they have one of the biggest uh, single infrastructure, smart, smart infrastructure projects going on right now in the US. So why do we do all of this? It's not about how cool the technology is, although it's really cool and it changes a lot, but it's really just to improve people's quality of life, their access to education, healthcare, um, jobs, et cetera, and how to drive growth in the economy, better access to jobs and ladders of opportunity, how to become a, a world-class leading community and be a model for a lot of the other communities around the US, and foster sustainability in energy and food production and all different areas that we need to consider as we continue to develop going forward. And it's very interesting, if I were Amazon in this whole HQ2 project, um, I would really be looking at where are the smart cities of the future, the communities that are paving the way for the companies of the future to be able to support them with transportation and the workforce of the future and how they're engaging people around uh, STEM and computer science education at early ages and what they're, they're, what foundation they are laying to be able to support especially disruptive companies like Amazon. So it'll be really interesting to see if that actually enters into the equation. It certainly wasn't part of the RFP, but it's very often the intangibles that come to play in, in decision making like that. So it'll be interesting to see if that plays into it. Um, so how can companies use data and technology to identify which communities are best preparing for the future? There are a lot of case studies out there. I've just given you some of the examples of them. Um, some, some of the, the reasons that companies want to be able to have a technologically savvy uh, community is that they need better, faster, cheaper software and hardware, significantly more data and better transparency going forward, more powerful analytics and predictive decision-making tools, decreased transactional friction in the way that business is being conducted, and increased velocity and decision-making, and then resource optimization, obviously. Um, one of the products that my company, Statebook International, is launching right now is where we've added an additional tab to Statebook. We're just in the final process of uh, completing this development. And it's called, we call it our innovation tab. And we've actually taken specific areas of our data from all of the different components that we aggregate data in. And we've grabbed the clusters that are related to tech and um, smart cities growth and education, workforce, all of those different elements, and we've aggregated that into one tab so that companies can come into our system and not just search and filter for the different factors that they know they need in their particular project, but also to engage with, really quickly identify where a community stands as it relates to smart cities deployment and innovation, what they're doing in innovation and tech to be able to support those companies of the future and so forth. And we've um, not only aggregated our data around this, but we've also um, created a content management system that enables economic development organizations 
to really focus on how they are communicating to companies that they're doing this kind of work around education and STEM and what kind of industries they're looking to attract to their communities that have to do with technology, where those innovation clusters are, what they're doing to support apprenticeships and entrepreneurship and so forth, what they're doing around uh, trans smart transportation grids and utility smart grids and all kinds of different elements that really help to support those companies of the future going forward. Technology itself helps communities differentiate that are adopting technology faster and helps companies identify the communities of the, of the future today. What happens if you don't keep pace with technology? We've seen a million different types of examples of this. Kodak going out of business when they could have moved into digital cameras and instead they just chose to stick with what they know and what had been successful for them in, in the past and kind of ignored the technologies that were happening so quickly around them. Same thing with Blockbuster. They could have gone into online uh, movies and so forth and instead they stuck with their big box stores that had been so successful for them in the past and and you just see these case studies over and over and these companies were left then unable to defend themselves as technology kind of took over and surpassed them and and let their <laughs> companies kind of crumble as a result and it happens overnight it happens incredibly fast they didn't expect it they didn't think they thought it was a passing trend digital cameras on your phone or whatever it is and and instead it's it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and some people think like, oh, why don't companies move quickly enough? What happens? Why don't they adopt technology? And is it a deer in the headlights thing? And it's not really that at all, actually. It's this, uh, this thing called active inertia. And again, it's just really thinking that what has been successful for you in the past is going to work in the future. And it doesn't work that way. I heard a, a really depressing statistic actually really the other day, which was um, that 15% of people will do what they, something that they know is good for them, right? For me, I know I should be going running every morning and I rarely do it. <laughs> I do eat healthy food, but that's because I really like it. I prefer the flavor. Um, but you know, 15% of people will do something that they know is good for them. And 87% of people will do something that they know what could potentially cause them to lose something, lose out on something. So it's kind of a depressing statistic. All that negative marketing really works. Um, so it's not that you don't know what to do. It's that you don't do it. So I'll leave you with that and uh, happy to take any questions. But what I would say is go do it. Adopt the technology. Think about what you need to do to make your businesses more effective and really utilize the tools and keep abreast of them that are around you. Thank you very much. This concludes the Cornet Global Podcast on impacts of data, innovation, and technology on CRE competitiveness. Want to record a What's Next podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.